Dear Father, we are thankful tonight for a full house and an eager crowd ready to listen to your word. You've, uh, you've stored something really special in your word for us tonight in chapter 2 of Daniel, Father. And many of us have studied it and know it pretty well already. We've come to it before because it's so important to understanding important things in Scripture. The prophecy that you give us in Scripture, a lot of it hinges on this chapter, as we know. And so we're, we're eager to see all that we can in it. And Lord, I pray for those who've never studied it tonight, that our teaching, my teaching and the spirit through me would be uh, as clear as a bell. Father, everything would come out just as you intend, because we don't want to miss what you have for us in this chapter tonight. And uh, let its work be done in the hearts of those who hear, inspiring us, awing us, Father, showing us your sovereignty and power in a way that gives us greater confidence to follow you in faith. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Welcome to chapter two of the verse by verse ministry teaching of Daniel. If you have done our verse by verse ministry study of Revelation, or if you have sat through any of the end times seminars, the most recent one we did was at Oak Hills earlier this year, then there'll be a lot of this chapter that will be familiar to you. And I certainly hope that's true, actually, because it often takes people a couple of tries at Daniel two to really grasp all that is in this chapter. And it's certainly not a bad thing if you have done it before. If you have never done this chapter or don't know what's in it, then you're in for a treat. This is one of the most important chapters of the Bible. In fact, I'm pretty sure I'll repeat that comment on multiple chapters in the book of Daniel. You're going to learn some things here that are absolutely essential, foundational to understanding prophecy. Many longtime students of verse by verse ministry know that as I try to teach, I like to use illustrations when I'm on the theme of evil, of Satan, of his instruments on earth. I like to rely on easy illustrations that really capture the essence of these important theological ideas. And longtime listeners know what my favorite example is on these themes. Poodle. So we lost our poodle in 2014. And, you know, when you travel and people listen to you, they hear all the comments about poodles in the recording and they tend to think that, your dog's immortal because they don't know what year it was when you talked about it. So they just assume he's still around. And as a result, I really felt bad every time they said, well, how's your poodle doing? Oh, he died or she died. It really ended the conversation on a sour note. So knowing that I needed some new material for illustration, I mean, we have the Antichrist coming up in this book, for example. I was forced for the need of material only to acquiesce to my wife's request for a poodle. So uh, Yeah, get it out of your system. Uh, It's a toy poodle. So, you know, if you're going to have a poodle, the smaller, the better, in my opinion, because there's just less of it. We do not have a name. My wife asked for suggestions. Nebuchadnezzar. Beelzebub. Mm, All right. So I just thought I'd get that out of the way. So you will be hearing more poodle references going forward. So last week we did our introduction. Today we're ready to dive into the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And this next section, the next section of the book is written in Aramaic. You remember first chapters in Hebrew. Now we're starting into a section of Aramaic, which indicates that the context of what he's writing about now was intended for both the Jew and the Gentile, for the Babylonian to understand as well. The section I'm speaking about now that's in Aramaic runs six chapters, starting in chapter two. And it contains, that section contains, one of the most impressive prophetic revelations that you can find anywhere in Scripture. The section is organized as a chiasm. And if you all have been here with me before, you may remember what I mean by this. I'll explain it again today for those who don't know it. 
A chiasm is a structured way of organizing the content of a writing, of some thought in your writing, so that you can emphasize for the reader where your main point is. We use outlines as a way of doing that in our way, but in the Eastern way of writing, they didn't use outlines like we do. They use something called a chiasm, a different method of outlining than the one we're used to. So each of the chapters in this six-chapter sequence has a main point or a main topic. And as we progress through them, you'll see the chiasm develop. By the way, the name comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks sort of like the fish you put on the back of your car. And let me show you what it looks like. The first chapter, chapter two in this section, the one we'll study today, is a prophecy concerning four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world. That's point A. The next chapter, chapter three, God delivers Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution. Then we'll go to chapter four. God humbles the Gentile king of Babylon, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar, to demonstrate his sovereignty over them, over the world. You notice I label them A, B, and C. Well, now we're going to back out in the same order with the same thoughts in the chapters that follow. The next chapter, which would be chapter five, the topic is, again, God deposing, in this case, a Gentile king, Belshazzar, to demonstrate his sovereignty. Backing out to B, prime, God delivering Daniel from Gentile persecution in Daniel 6. And then finally, A prime, the prophecy concerning Gentile empires, four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world. You see how the structure of a chiasm works. So the chiasm takes thoughts, walks them in and then walks them back out. Where your eye is drawn is to the point, to the juncture between where the turn happens, between C and C prime in this case. So as we look down this chiasm, it begins to explain the seemingly contradictory plan that God has for Israel under Gentile domination and persecution. Because you've already seen Israel taken away by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar, as God appointed, and yet he's called Israel his people. And he is ostensibly working for their good. How is it then that Gentiles have gained authority over Israel? Well, at the same time that God is allowing Gentiles to have this authority, he is still protecting and preserving the Jewish people until some future time of rescue. Israel will be on the losing side of a struggle against the Gentile world, but it's God who put Israel there, and it will be God who ultimately rescues Israel from that fate. And you see it in this little bit of a chiasm, where you see at the same time that God is telling them through Daniel that they're going to be dominated by Gentile authority, he's still protecting them on an individual basis, and he still demonstrates his sovereignty over those very Gentile kings that he put in place. So that as you understand the chiasm, you come to realize that it is not all lost, that God is in control, he's still on his throne, and he's working through these events for some greater good. Tonight we're going to study the first part of that chiasm. In chapter 2, Daniel will interpret... A dream, a dream that God gives to the king of Babylon. In this dream, the Lord is revealing his plan to bring a succession of Gentile kingdoms to rule the earth. And during that time, Israel will be under the authority of these Gentile kingdoms, of these Gentile powers. But at the end of a long period of human history, the Lord is going to restore Israel as the chief nation on the earth, and thus the Messiah will usher in the long-awaited kingdom that will come on this physical earth and will exist for a thousand years according to Scripture. That's my big overview of what the dream is going to show. Let's go into it in detail. Let's start in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can read with me. Verse 1, Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. So the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. My drama notwithstanding, there you go, first section. In verse 1, you hear that Nebuchadnezzar's second full year of king has come and he has had dreams during this year. And as you're soon going to see in the chapter, the dreams were not so much the result of too much pizza on a long night of drinking or something. God has given the king these dreams intentionally. In fact, the Hebrew indicates, and there is still Hebrew in this chapter, the Aramaic does not start until verse 4. The Hebrew indicates that the king had multiple dreams. So, Either the dream just repeated itself, or the king received the dream in pieces. But one way or the other, it's gone on for some time. And God made these visions so dramatic, so troubling, so provocative, that the king could not forget them and he couldn't ignore them. Not all our dreams have significance, much less prophetic meaning sent from God. Uh, Mine, frankly, rarely even makes sense. But occasionally, in Scripture, we see... The Lord using dreams to communicate to someone from behind the scenes. And he still does this even today. There are reports, I think, that are credible of God using dreams to draw people to Christ. In this case, he's doing something very interesting. He's withheld the meaning from the king, yet he clearly wants the king to understand something. It's like he's given him a puzzle rather than just giving him the answer to the puzzle, which I find very interesting. And there's a good reason for this. He wants the king to reach out for an explanation and reach out. He does. He starts with all of his counselors, all of those in Babylon who were in his employment specifically for times like this. These men, he says, consist of four groups. They are named here magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and astrologers or Chaldeans. And they all have different roles. A magician is someone who attempts to divine the future. A conjurer attempts to communicate with the dead. A sorcerer attempts to cast spells or call up the dead or demons. Astrologers read the heavens for the future. And as you see in the text, all of these men are called before the king. All of them are asked for an interpretation. But the king, smartly, 
wants to make sure he's going to know that they're telling the truth when they finally give his interpretation. So he requires that these guys tell him what he dreamed before he tells them what's in the dream so that then he knows if they give an interpretation that they have a reasonable chance of telling him the truth. Because if you could tell him something he already knew, then he's confident you could tell him something he didn't know. He tells them, if you cannot do these things for me, he says, I'm going to put all of you to death. And predictably, they object to the new rules. Since it makes their job a lot harder, never mind the fact that it's going to expose any fraud. Starting with the first protest here, there's three altogether. It's in the second half of verse 4. When they start to speak in the second half of verse 4, that's when Daniel switches to writing in Aramaic. Probably because their own speech would have been in Aramaic, so he's capturing their words in that sense. But also, because of what's going on in the chapter at this point and forward, are things that directly relate not only to Jewish history, but also to Gentile history. In fact, Aramaic now continues all the way to chapter 7, verse 28. When these guys protest, the king starts to see exactly what he thought he would see, and that's why he had this rule change. He sees that they're just stalling because they don't have an answer. Verse 5, he says, I'm going to kill you guys. I'm calling your bluff. If you can't tell me something I already know, then you can't tell me stuff I don't know. And back and forth they go. They insinuate that Nebuchadnezzar isn't a great king because they said no great king would ever ask such a thing of people like us. So it's a mild attempt to uh, undermine him. And then they add this, and this is why the protests are so important to the text. They said only gods could reveal things that the king seeks to know in this case. In fact, they say it can't be found among flesh. This is precisely the conclusion that the Lord wanted Nebuchadnezzar to arrive at in the course of trying to understand his dream. This is a dream that only the Lord will reveal. And contrary to their claims there, he is actually going to reveal it through flesh. That is, through Daniel, through the prophet. That sets up the entrance of our hero. And you probably knew this already, of course, that the point in giving him a dream without an answer is so that it would connect Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, similarly in the way that Pharaoh finds Joseph, for example. The king, we're told, got these dreams in his second year. That's important when we come back to the topic of Daniel. In ancient Babylon, they counted a monarch's first year of reign as starting with the first full calendar year after they assumed the throne. So they may have been enthroned six months into the year, but they don't count any of that time as his first year. They count it all toward his predecessor. His first year of ruling doesn't start until, in our case, January 1st, or in their case, the first of Nisan. Ancient records show that that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar became king at about a halfway point through the year 605 B.C. So if we're talking here about the king's second full year, well, the first year didn't start until he'd already been ruling for six months. And his second full year then would have stretched from 603 B.C. to 602 B.C. That would have been his second full year. Why is that important? Well, Daniel, if you remember, was placed in a three-year training program starting in 605 B.C. in order to become one of these wise counselors in the court of the king. So at the point of these dreams, Daniel is either just finishing his three-year training or right about to finish his three-year training. In either case, what that means is He's about to reach qualification to be brought into service under these circumstances. However, God has timed it so that he is, by definition, the least qualified among all those who are in the king's employment. He is just leaving basic training. 
And yet he's going to be called to solve this problem ahead of all the others who've been in service to the king for who knows how long. He's the perfect candidate for God to elevate into service so as to bring glory to God when he's able to interpret these dreams. Verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, predictably, uh, Nebuchadnezzar follows through in his word. He says, we're going to kill all these guys. They're apparently worthless. All this time I've been listening to them, and they clearly don't know what they're doing. And since Daniel has just entered into this service, he's caught up in this. He and his friends are suddenly caught up in the melee, and yet they know nothing of what's brought this thing on. Not until Arioch who's been assigned the responsibility to come kill all these guys, shows up and tells Daniel, sorry, I'm under orders to kill you right now. And Daniel, with discretion but discernment, starts asking questions. He doesn't panic. He doesn't beg. He doesn't argue. He remains rational. He remains thoughtful, though obviously aware of the seriousness of his situation. Simply put, he doesn't operate in fear. Fear, friends, is a sinful response to the circumstances of life that reflects a failure to trust in the Lord. And it's often born out of a longing to preserve this life at the expense of the next. Jesus is speaking about this very dilemma when he says in John chapter 12, verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. So Daniel is another example here of us, for us here of how character can influence our ability to serve God in an area that I think is often overlooked, as an important ingredient to the character of serving God well. And that is not living in the fear that the enemy can provoke in us for fear of things like losing our life even. This is just an example to show you that I'm not a very good pastor. I tell people, look, you're going to die something sooner or later anyway. (laughs) At the end of it all, that's the theological outlook that needs to drive our understanding of everyday life, if not in those words, at least in that understanding, because... If you don't understand that this life is passing for good reason, then you're tempted, you're likely to be tempted to secure it at all costs, to include costs that are eternal. Daniel didn't want to die, that's for sure. This was not the day he wanted to die. But on the other hand, he didn't want to trade everything for the opportunity to live a day longer. He just wanted to know if it was in God's purpose and plan to spare him. That's a very reasonable request from anyone who's a faithful follower of of the Lord God, and yet at the same time may have an existential concern. The question isn't, am I going to die? The question is, God, do you want me to die this way now? That's a good question. He knew that his ability to understand and operate in God's will in the midst of these challenging circumstances depended on him keeping his wits about him. Daniel's example is just another one of, of how we can be eminently practical as we face the challenges that God throws at us. Be smart, be creative, be adaptable, be calm, be thoughtful, and yet unyielding in your character 
and in your godliness. And then just trust God for whatever comes next. But this wasn't Daniel's day. Far from it. So Daniel's next step is to buy some time. But I want you to notice what his thinking is. It's evident in his words. He says, I have to spend time appealing to the Lord for an answer because he knows that only the Lord is going to be able to grant him the answer he needs to get himself out of this situation. So to get that time, he goes to the king and he asks for the time. But did you notice what he says to the king? He says, the reason I need time is not, oh, I wonder if I can figure this out. Give me some time to see if I can. He doesn't say that. He says, give me some time and I will interpret the dream. He gives a promise, in effect, to the king. He's already assuming that the king is going to get his interpretation, which means Daniel had a sense either of his calling or God's gifting or some trust that God was going to use this. Because he, I don't think he's presuming God's will here. I think he actually had some insight that told him, this is my purpose for being here and I'm going to let... God worked through it. So before he ever prayed, and I think you need to look at the order here and and don't overlook it, he didn't pray and then talk to the king. He told the king, I'm going to give you an interpretation. Now give me time to go pray. Again, I don't think he's presuming on God. I think he had some knowledge of what God was planning to do. Now it's a fine line, admittedly, but I think you and I can operate in a similar confidence when you know you have a calling on your life to do something as God has appointed. Evangelists who are confident in their gifting and their mission, they step forward to present the gospel when everyone else is hesitant or afraid. Teachers like myself who know they have a calling or know they have a gifting and they're confident in what God has already appointed them to do, they'll tackle a Bible study that others are struggling to deal with and do it before they even know what's in the book because they just have a confidence God will show me something. Not a presumption, but a confidence based on a knowledge of his calling or gifting in my life. If you're waiting for him to show you the answer before you step out to give him what you're supposed to give him, I think you'll miss a lot of opportunity to serve. If you're operating in God's calling and gifting, you don't need to hesitate. You don't need to apologize for confidence. And you certainly don't need a special invitation. You just need to act. Let God show himself. So Daniel declares, I'm ready to serve the king. I just need time to seek the Lord's guidance. Presumably, if the Lord had not granted any guidance or approval to Daniel, then he would have come back to the king and said, sorry, I I spoke too soon. Put me to death. He would have just understood that was God's intention. Of course, that was not God's intention in this case. So we move on to the next section. We'll start using more of the slides here in a moment. Daniel 2.19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Now, in Daniel's narrative, he jumps immediately from what he said to the king to receiving an answer from God. So, interestingly, we never see his prayer asking for this. Presumably there was one. We just see him tell the king, I'm going to get an interpretation. And we jump now to him thanking the Lord for having given him the visions that he needed. So, it appears as though he went to wherever he slept prayed that night with his friends, and then in that night, it says here, night visions came to him. He received an answer so that he could go to the king the next day. Because frankly, it's hard to believe under the circumstances we're reading about that the king would have given him very much longer than a night to come back with an answer. That's my assumption. And in that night, 
he gets a night vision. A night vision in this case could be a euphemism for a dream or it could mean a conscious revelation that occurred in the evening. So he's not sleeping, he just gets a vision. Daniel received the answer to the dream directly from the Lord. So the Lord delivered a coded message to the king and he delivered the decoder ring to Daniel. We might ask, why didn't the Lord just give the king the decoder message in the first place? One is so that these men come together, but there's other reasons too you could think of. Remember, God, since Abraham, has always revealed himself through the Jewish people. He always brings his word through Jewish prophets, not through Gentile prophets. He may use a Gentile like Nebuchadnezzar as well from time to time and others like him, but even then the Lord requires that that Gentile go find a Jew to get an answer to his questions. Secondly, the Lord is speaking to a Gentile leader, but he's speaking to the Gentile leader about the rise and fall of Gentile kingdoms as they relate to Israel's future. Israel is still the centerpiece of this whole conversation. Because it deals with Israel's future, the Lord uses a Jewish prophet to reveal the truth to Israel. Daniel's words indicate that he doesn't just understand the vision, but he understands its significance. That is to say, he didn't just get the answers to pass on to the king, he also understands the meaning of those answers, historically, in other words. He had the big picture. Look what he says. First, he credits God's wisdom and power for the plan that was to be revealed. Now, he's not just talking here about God's ability to reveal a mystery about a dream. He's not praising him because, oh, you interpreted the dream for me. Thank you, Lord. No, he's talking about the subject matter of the dream. He's praising God for having the wisdom and power to move kingdoms in and out of place throughout the course of history. Look in verse 21. He extols the works of God about changing times and changing epochs or epochs. He establishes and removes leaders. Now, Daniel here, speaking of times and epochs, he's referring to something very specific, which is really the very topic of the dream. It's something we need to look at before we get into the dream. The word times here refers to the course of history, and the word epoch refers to a specific period of time within the course of history. So you could call history times, And you could call an epoch or epoch the sectioning of history into pieces that all link together to create history. God, according to Daniel, is the author not only of the whole of history, but God is also the one who is dividing it and causing those divisions to move one to the next from one age or epoch to another. And of course, he's doing all these things with purpose. This is not random stuff happening on earth. This is all according to some plan. These concepts I'm talking about here that Daniel raises, times, epochs, those concepts are also taught in the New Testament, though with slightly different terms. In the New Testament, the term for epochs is ages. The history of creation from Adam onward can be divided into ages. The same idea as Daniel used the word epoch to describe. A sectioning of history, which the Lord controls, Daniel says. We're talking about hundreds or thousands of years. It's a long yet finite time in God's program of history. It has a beginning. It has an end. We give you an example from Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Jesus speaking to the disciples said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, Eternal life. Now you can see in that description there of ages one now and 
one to come. Just to note here, interestingly, when he talks here about the age to come is when you have eternal life, you need to understand you don't have eternal life right now. You have the promise of eternal life. That promise comes to you by faith in Christ. It is assured. It is not going to change. God's promises are as faithful as God is. So it's not as though there's any doubt that it's going to happen. But I'm saying in terms of the reality of your experience, you do not yet have the eternal life that is promised you. You still live in a mortal body. Once your body is gone and your new one comes, well, then you will see the eternal life that will define the next age, the age that follows our current one. But the point of this is just generally to say that you have ages. A present age, and then some age to come. When one stops, the next begins. It's a very simple concept, but God counts history in this way. Epochs, periods of time that have a purpose in their own. But when the purpose is met, then we move on to the next age and something else follows. This, from what we can tell in Scripture, this will go on for an eternity. That there's always something coming. Furthermore, the Lord generally gives you notice when these changes in ages are going to happen. That is, when you're about to transition there's usually a little heads up to those who are living at that time. For example, just as he is giving Daniel through this dream an understanding of what he's going to be doing in the future through these ages. In the New Testament, the transition from one age to another is called last days. And the last days then are the final period within a given age which tells you that you are near the transition to the next age. Kind of like the two-minute warning in football. The last days of an age are those moments that tell you you're close to the end. Sometimes last days can last hundreds of years, even a thousand years. It's not necessarily a short period of time, but it's an indication to you that you know you're near the end. Let me give you some examples. In 2 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Speaking about the days we live in now, actually. 2 Peter 3.3, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. These are just two examples. There are others you can certainly find if you want to search on that term. But the point is that just as Daniel here says, God is the author of times, of history, and he's the author of the epochs that mark history, New Testament has exactly the same concepts. Daniel is praising the Lord here for his sovereignty in making these assignments of time and the transitions between them. God is the author of history. But more than that, he has set the events of history into ages so as to accomplish greater purposes and yet give meaning to what's going on in these assigned periods. For example, Daniel proclaims in verse 20, God is the one who changes these periods of history. Do you notice that? He's actually ahead of what's happening to move history forward. He's in control of leading the world to a certain purpose. As you've probably heard many times, those who would ask the question of, is there really a God or can God be good when some tragedy befalls the earth, when some terrorist attack or earthquake or tsunami comes, those questions always follow afterward. And those questions are born out of myopic thinking. You know, myopathy is that, that narrowing of your vision so you can't, you can't see very clearly to the sides. By definition, if ages or epochs are long, long periods of time, far, far in excess of the lifespan of an average human being, then how much perspective do you really think any of us can have on a single event in light of how much else has gone on before and after it as God is doing something to accomplish good for the world. You can't begin to judge whether one event is good or bad under those circumstances because it's, it's so narrow. 
compared to all that God is doing. Don't you have to wait to the end to know if it's actually going to be good or not? That's the perspective we don't have, which is why we have to live by what God says in his word and not simply by what we can see and assume and what we know in the world. As we're going to see in the dream, God has this elaborate plan for how he's going to move the world to the end of this age. Furthermore, Daniel says the Lord decides who he permits to see these things and understand them. Daniel says in verse 21 that many people live and die without ever understanding what's going on in history. They never come to the big picture. And that's logical when you remember that if you only live a few decades within human history, it's naturally outside your ability to understand the larger scale of what God is doing in the world. You literally have no hope to understand it unless and until he decides to tell you what the big story is. If he doesn't share it with you, you and I would never know it. Because our own perspectives could never find it. And then finally, in verse 22, Daniel praises the Lord for his purpose in all of this. God, he says, is working to bring light into darkness. That is, the light of his truth into a world darkened by the lies of the enemy. Ultimately, then, God is working through ages of history to bring evil and darkness to an end. He could, should he choose to, bring evil and darkness to an end instantly at any moment. God is certainly capable of doing that. Therefore, it is somehow better for God not to do that. That the waiting is to some greater good. Speaking as someone who was born in the 20th century, I'm pretty happy that he waited 20 centuries and longer to put an end to everything on earth. Because if he had stopped the plan 500 years ago, where were you and I? It's so funny how short-sighted people are. It's exactly what Peter was talking about when he says, you know, you who think God is slow about his promises, you know, his whole point to the reader is you're sitting here complaining for why God hasn't brought Jesus back sooner and you're oblivious to the very fact that if it was a day sooner than your birth, where would you be? It's all great as long as it includes you, doesn't it? God will triumph over evil, but he chooses to do it on his own timetable. And now Daniel has received this remarkable insight into a timetable for our current age. So in verse 23, Daniel ends in thanks, knowing it has saved his life and the life of his companions. And now we move into his interaction with Nebuchadnezzar, which is where we'll learn about the dream as well. Daniel 2, 24 through 30. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, well, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, well, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel goes to the king's representative the next morning. He knows he has an answer. So he tells him, take me to the king. Now, Arioch is the guy that's been charged, as you remember, with killing all these guys. And 
as he gets the word from Daniel, notice what he does. He runs to the king and takes credit for himself. Meanwhile, as he's taking credit for something he had nothing to do with, Daniel is consistently redirecting credit away from himself, as you can see, toward the Lord. And when the king asks Daniel if he can do this thing, Daniel, in effect, says, no, not really. He can't do these things, but he says there's a God in heaven who can do these things. He locates this God as in heaven. I think what he's doing is he's showing contrast between the gods of Babylon who resided in the temples on earth that Babylon made for them. He says this prophecy concerns latter days. The term latter days simply means the future days of the end. Daniel says not only is this about latter days, but he says this is a prophecy about the future. Because the latter days of the age were some distance into the future from where they stood at this time in 603 or whenever it was, 602 B.C. So it's a description. The dream is a description of history, of future things in history, things that lead up to the end or the latter days of a period of history, an epoch, an age. And just like with almost any story about an important event, you only really care about how it ends. I mean, if I was going to relate to you some important football game from last weekend, it's pretty much how the game ends that is of most interest to you, right? If I never tell you how it ends, it doesn't really matter what I tell you in the first three quarters, right? It's just kind of lost all its punch. Similarly, in this prophecy, there is a conversation about the passage of history and certain events that will have to happen in history, but it's only really focused on the end. The reason it's even being offered through Daniel is so that we can understand how it ends, The end of this is the point. That's why latter days was emphasized. So in knowing what happens, particularly the end, we're then also led to understand why it happens. And the why is really the whole reason God tells anything to us about anything that he's doing. These events make up a history that is not a random collection of events. They are part of a plan. God is working this plan to bring the end of this age to a certain conclusion in a certain way. And all of this is working together for God's glory and to accomplish what he has already promised that he was going to do for his people. Through the dream, he's simply communicating in advance how he's going to do all of that. Now he begins to explain it. Verse 31 through 35. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the famous Daniel 2 statue. This Dream is one of the most intriguing visions in all the Bible, and no less so if you're familiar with it. The dream is of a strange and majestic statue. The materials of the statue vary from head to toe, as as you heard described, and they progress in two particular ways. They progress from top to bottom in, first, decreasing majesty. You go from gold through silver to bronze, ultimately to 
iron and then clay and iron at the bottom. And secondly, they progress from softer, more malleable materials to more brittle materials. So they become increasingly brittle as you move down the statue. We'll look at the meaning of these things as we go. And then he describes what came next. He said, a stone uncut by human hands descended from above like an asteroid and struck the feet of the statue. And even though it only hit at the feet, he says, then the whole statue is completely obliterated by the falling rock, leaving nothing. But the stone that hit it, that stone begins to grow into a mountain. The mountain eventually fills the whole earth, as you heard. We'll come back to each of these details as Daniel does when he interprets. That's the dream. Now, it's very simple. I mean, it's, it's very dramatic, but it's very simple. And yet, despite its simplicity, you can see now why it's not going to be possible for anyone to understand what it's talking about, because you can imagine, I guess, any kind of meaning to assign to these things. It doesn't constrain you enough that you go down only one path of thought. You could go so many different directions that you're left with no clear understanding of what the real truth is about this puzzle. It's the kind of puzzle that just doesn't solve itself. You're going to have to have someone walk you through it. But yet, it's specific enough that once you get the theme, once you get the thread, you'll be able to know you're on the right path because the details will all line up. Unless you know and accept the Lord's own interpretation, you'll never get a correct one from anyone else. Interestingly, when I run into people who completely misunderstand Daniel 2, inevitably it's because they left the text behind, usually early in the chapter. It's as if they just ignored that the answer was already given to them on the page, and they thought it better to imagine something of their own desires instead, and they end up in some strange corner of understanding. And you just want to take them back to the text and say, you don't have to imagine it, friend. It's on the page. Just read it. But sometimes imagination thrills us more than truth. Now, let's turn to the interpretation, beginning in 36 through 38. This was the dream. Now we will tell us interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength and the glory. And whatever this or wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And actually, this is where I start to use some scripture. Sorry, could have given you that, shouldn't I? Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. That the top of this statue, the head of it, represented Nebuchadnezzar as the ruler of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is not just the king of Babylon. Do you notice what he says? He has the power. God assigned this power to him such that Nebuchadnezzar was able to conquer the entire planet. By God's decree, Nebuchadnezzar rules over every single square inch of the planet. Now, we know that in his day, Nebuchadnezzar did not travel, much less lead an army, to every square inch of the globe. So how is it that Daniel can say that he had authority over the whole of the earth? Well, what Daniel is saying is that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar the authority over the earth, regardless of the degree to which Nebuchadnezzar actually assumed that authority. That is to say, had Nebuchadnezzar got on the Santa Maria and traveled to the New World, there would not have been an army or a nation or a force anywhere that he encountered that he would not have conquered for as long as God has given him this authority. It just didn't happen, but that doesn't mean it wasn't already under his assumed authority had God allowed him to go that far. He just was unchallenged. That's the point. We see this confirmed in Jeremiah 27.5. 
the prophet speaking for God to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts, which are on the face of the earth, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild beasts of the field to serve him. And what he's saying is this, literally, if Nebuchadnezzar walked out into the plains of the Serengeti without a weapon in his hand, not a lion, not a wildebeest, nothing would have touched him. I don't know how it exactly would have looked. That's not really the point. The point is that God has given him that degree of authority. He was unchallenged as a living creature on the physical earth for a time. Jeremiah ends by saying, All the nations shall serve him and his sons and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. I love how he ends that because Jeremiah confirms that he has this power. Nebuchadnezzar has this power, but for only a time as God appointed. And that at some point in time, he will lose it. So it has a purpose. The choice of gold, in this case, for the head, it represents... The style of government in the kingdom. Remember we said that these metals diminish in their majesty as you move down the chart. And generally, gold was the top of the heap. And that's the symbolism here, the best. In Babylonian society, the king, the monarch, was truly all-powerful. No one challenged his rule. No one challenged his edict. There was no senate. There was no prime minister. There was no supreme court. I mean, basically, Nebuchadnezzar had absolute authority in the way that you only see in fairy tale books, where one guy, for whatever reason, could have a whim to do whatever he wanted, and there was no challenge to his authority. As often as you may think that that's how all monarchs work, the truth is that almost none ever do work that way. Not in Rome, it didn't work that way. Not in many other societies. But in Babylon, it did. And so in that sense, he represents the epitome, the top of the heap for the majesty of power and authority. He even had control over the animals. All right, very unique role. Notice, though, as I mentioned in Jeremiah 27, it comes and then it goes. Easy come, easy go for Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see later in the book of Daniel when it goes. The next part of the statue confirms... My conclusion, Daniel 2, 39. After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze which will rule over all the earth. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, something will come after you. You're not the end of the story. And in fact, he says, another kingdom will replace you at the top of the heap. Notice though he says, this new world power is in some sense less majestic, less powerful than you. Even though it had the power to displace you, it doesn't equal you. Now before we look at the second and and then the third kingdoms, let's understand what our statue represents. We see a head of gold, meaning Babylon, and that the silver and the bronze represent subsequent kingdoms. And in the description I just read, you see them moving from one to another to another. A succession of kingdoms, in other words. That tells us that this statue represents a timeline of history. The nature of it, the idea that one thing gives way to the next, gives way to the next, that implies time or events over time. So we know that the statue now is like a timeline that's been stood on its feet. Instead of drawing a timeline left to right horizontally, it's been drawn vertically, but it's the same idea. From top to bottom represents time Moving from top to bottom. Each part then of this statue represents a piece of that time. Progressing from the head all the way down to the feet. 
So the statue represents an age, an epoch, a period of history. We know when it began because the head represents Babylon, and we know when Nebuchadnezzar came to power, 605 B.C. And we get to the end of the dream, we're going to know how it ends. So, does this age have a name? Does this epoch, this period of time we're describing here, rather than just calling it Daniel's statue, what does the Bible actually call this age? Jesus named it for us, specifically, when he described it in Luke 21. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus said this, And they will fall by the edge of the sword, this is speaking of Israel, they will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, in chapter 21 of Luke, Jesus is in the midst of explaining how Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Romans. That's who does the work he's talking about here. And he's explaining this coming fall of the city, which we know happened in AD 70. Jesus is saying these events that are going to come when Israel falls by the edge of the sword, when they're led captive and so on, these are part of a larger plan. They're not an isolated incident. He says they are part of a larger age, which he calls the age of the Gentiles. And it's an age that's defined by some details that he just gave us. It's defined by Israel's being in exile, being scattered, being captive in all the nations, and of the city of Jerusalem being dominated by the Gentiles. And it's called the age of the Gentiles because it is a period of history in which Gentile nations rule over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, in my Bible, you see the word times of the Gentiles, but the word times there in Greek, kairos in Greek, it can also be translated as a season or, interestingly, as the word age. So we could just as easily have said the age of the Gentiles. Here again, what is an age? It's a large span of history with a beginning and an end, and an epoch would be another name for it. So, Jesus says that the events of A.D. 70 were merely a continuation of an age which Jesus said must continue until the age is fulfilled. The word fulfilled in Greek is pleiru. It means completed. So here's what he just said. The Roman sacking of Jerusalem is just another moment in the timeline of an age called the age of the Gentiles, which will have to continue on until the age is completed. And from the statue in Daniel 2, we now see where this age actually began. Because the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the very first person in history to do the very things that Jesus said define the age. He was the first person to scatter the people of Israel into nations, the people of Judah, the ones who possessed Jerusalem. And he was the first one to ever breach the walls of Jerusalem and trample it, as Jesus said. And as a result, since Nebuchadnezzar, that has been the continuing experience of the people of Israel through history and of their city. The statue is a description of this age of Gentiles, a period of time of Gentile kingdoms, one after another after another, who collectively trample Jerusalem and scatter the people of Israel. Now, this does not preclude some brief moment in time when Israel recaptures their city or some brief moment in history when the people of Israel start to regather in their land. That's not the point. It is to say, though, that is always temporary. And here you go again. The next time you look, 
here comes another Gentile army and we're going right back to where we were. This will continue until Jesus says it is completed, which is to say until it stops permanently forever. You'll reach the end of the age of Gentiles when Israel is the most powerful nation on earth, when all Israel is in their land, not a single Jew lives outside their land, and Jerusalem is totally within the control of the Jewish people. When those three things happen, you have by definition left the age of the Gentiles. Until those things happen, by definition, you're still in the age of the Gentiles. Today, we still see it happening. Israel does not have control of their city. They are still being trampled. Even their own Temple Mount belongs to Gentiles. So even now, you can say definitively, we still exist in this same period because the definition Jesus gave is still accurate today as much as it was in his day, as much as it was in AD 70, or even in Daniel's day in 605 BC. We are still in the times of the Gentiles. Like all ages, though, this age has a beginning and an end. From studying the dream, we're going to come to understand how the age of the Gentiles progresses and how it ends. So let's move to the second and third kingdoms. When we look at what follows in these kingdoms, here was Babylon at the time of 605 B.C. The pink area represents the land mass that it covered on earth, roughly from Macedonia all the way to India and into North Africa. When we start to ask who replaces these kingdoms in the statue, who is the silver, who is the bronze, and so on, we have to understand by what criteria can you qualify to be part of the statue? How big a nation do you have to be? How powerful do you have to be? The criteria for the kingdoms in the statue derive from the definition of the age itself. And by that I mean this. First of all, you have to be a Gentile kingdom. You have to be the dominant power in the world. You have to be in possession of Babylon. That only makes sense, right? If Babylon starts the process and Babylon has their capital city, Babylon, if you are to replace Babylon as the world power, you have to defeat Babylon to get there. So you have to take control of their city. So if you're a world power, but you never defeated Babylon, you didn't become the dominant world power. And likewise, since the whole age of the Gentiles is defined as trampling Jerusalem, you have to occupy Jerusalem. Otherwise, again, you have not become the dominant world power in the timeline of the age of the Gentiles. So all of those things are true for Babylon. Babylon does all of these things. And as it turns out, only three other kingdoms in history do the same four things. And that's all you need. Three more to fill out the statue. So you don't have to guess. You just use the criteria that are implicit in the definition and you end up with the right answers. And we can run through this pretty quickly. The kingdom that succeeded Babylon is the Medo-Persians. They replaced the kingdom of Babylon in 550 B.C. We read of the transition actually later in the book of Daniel because it happens in Daniel's lifetime. The kingdom was formed by the alliance of the Medes and the Persians. That's why you see their part of the statue represented by the two arms, two powers that came together to create one entity. It grew until it was able to challenge and defeat Babylon under Cyrus the Great. Now, why is this kingdom less majestic? Why is it silver and not gold? It's because the king of the Medo-Persian Empire was not all-powerful like the kind of king you saw in Babylon. There are checks on his authority. In particular, the Medo-Persian laws stipulated that a king could never reverse the decisions of a prior king that came before him. So whatever the prior kings had said, you were bound to as a successor. You're actually going to see that rule at work later in the book of Daniel. So the rule of the Medo-Persian monarch was silver compared to Babylon's gold because it was not absolute. Nevertheless, they did defeat the Babylonians and they assumed their role in the statue. Verse 39, Daniel adds that a third kingdom 
will come along and assume power over the world. And that kingdom replaces the second one. And we know that that one was the Hellenistic Empire of Alexander the Great. Based on the same four criteria, this kingdom does the same things. They take over Jerusalem, they take over Babylon, they defeat the prior kingdom, in this case, Medo-Persians. And they are of a lesser power as well. Alexander was the one who extended the reach of this empire to its greatest extent. He defeated the Persians in 330 B.C. He competed with leaders of various city-states throughout Macedonia. He also had to deal with land aristocracy that had their own authority to rule certain parts of the land. Ultimately, his sovereignty was enforced simply because he had a powerful military that could impose his will upon others who might otherwise not do as he told them to do. This was not a monarch who could just snap his fingers and anything happened. He had to get on his horse and take an army and make it happen. And sometimes he could and sometimes he couldn't. So it was a lesser kind of authority. Also, you notice at this point in the statue, the statue divides into legs, starting with the thighs. The thighs are part of the bronze. They're part of the Hellenistic Empire. That division reflects the way that the Hellenistic Empire evolved in its own time. Alexander the Great died barely four years into his reign. He had no heirs, so his kingdom was divided into four parts and given to his four generals. The two generals in the west were aligned with each other, and the two generals in the east were aligned with each other. And that east-west political divide has never changed since the time of the Hellenistic Empire. Even today, we still speak of an east and west politically. And that has happened because of the division that took place under Alexander the Great. And it's reflected in the division of the legs. God himself predicting that we would come to this east and a west within the globe. You notice we don't talk about north and south hemispheres. We don't talk about the north or the south. We talk about the east and the west. That's a reflection of this statue. So Daniel's interpretation has sped past the second and third empires because they were not important features in this timeline. Once again, we don't care about the middle of the story. We care about the end of the story. You've got to cover the middle, but it's only to get you to the end. Let's look at what we've covered so far. Babylon, Medo-Persians, the Hellenistic Empire, ending with that east-west division. And now let's go to the fourth, verse 40. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the final kingdom moves to the least valuable of the materials, iron, and pottery, but the most brittle. It replaces the prior kingdom, and notice how it does it, by breaking that prior kingdom down and crushing it. This is a very important detail that really helps you understand who the fourth kingdom is. The fourth kingdom is different than the prior three in that the pattern changes. In the first three, you saw some superpower come in and consolidate what was there into something bigger again under a single monolithic name. Babylon became Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia became the Hellenistic Empire and so on. Rather than doing that, though, in the case of the fourth empire, the fourth will assimilate existing powers and yet leave them with their own identities so that they become pieces of something that is a conglomerate, a whole of pieces, as opposed to simply one monolith. Just as clay and iron do not stick well together, this kingdom will find that its various pieces 
will combine for periods of time in history and then for reasons of war or economic distress or whatever, they will fall, they will break apart for a while and recombine in different ways. This combining and separating pattern of the various pieces left over from the prior kingdoms still is a means to perpetuating the age of the Gentiles. Together they function, dispossess the people of Israel from their land, and to trample the city of Jerusalem and prevent Israel from retaking it. It's just different players are taking up the role of doing those things. And sometimes they do them in large alliances, sometimes they do them in small alliances. And as he said, in the seed of men, that is, in the relationships that take place between monarchs and presidents and prime ministers and sultans and whomever, you see these combining things happening and these separating things followed. This is the pattern of the fourth kingdom. Finally, as the kingdom comes to its end, a division of ten will emerge, represented by the ten toes. So at the very end of this fourth kingdom, something about the nature of this kingdom can be identified as ten. We don't give the explanation here. You'll find that later in chapter 7. But for now, we just need to understand that it ends in a division of ten. So what kind of kingdom fits the definition, the description that we just got from Daniel? Well, we know what replaced the Hellenistic Empire. And that's the first answer everyone will give, of course, right? So what kingdom came next? The Roman Republic defeated the Hellenistic Empire in 168 B.C. Rome eventually defeated Judah in 63 B.C. and soon afterward changed from a republic to a monarchy under a Caesar. As Rome conquered, it added new pieces to its realm and it would give these pieces the historic name that it's always maintained, like Judea became a province, or Brittany, or Normandy. Wherever these places were in the world, they became part of the Roman Empire, but they maintained their sense of who they had been historically. They were just amalgamated into this kingdom called the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire could very well be described as iron held together by clay. The Romans conquered like iron, they crushed those who opposed them, they cut up the land into new divisions, gave it names, but they let the lands retain their culture. And to some degree, that's why there was unrest from time to time within the empire, because these cultures at some point wanted to reassert their independence, and none more so than Judea. At this point, you might ask the natural question, well, whatever came of the Roman Empire, because we know this doesn't exist today, and yet there's no fifth kingdom. If we have not reached the end of the age, and we haven't, according to its definition... Well, then we're still in the fourth kingdom. And yet, if we're still in the fourth kingdom, how can we still be part of something that we know doesn't exist today in this form? What came after the Roman Empire? Well, in a word, nothing. The Roman Empire has never completely disappeared. Did you know that this entity, the Holy Roman Empire, it continued until the 1800s. It was only officially dissolved near the 1800s. The Roman Empire has never completely disappeared, not in the sense of what the statue means. Remember, the fourth kingdom is made up not of one entity, but of pieces. And those pieces combined at periods of time, and then they dissolve later for periods of time. That pattern's never ended. That that defined not only the time of the Roman Empire's rule, but it's only increased in the centuries after the Roman Empire dissolved. Western and Eastern Europe and the Middle East and even North Africa and Western Asia, they've all experienced this pattern. Just go look at a map today. If it had been a pane of glass and you had dropped an iron bar on it, that's the pattern you would have found. It's an iron-like kingdom that breaks things up into pieces and then tries to stick them together again as if with clay, which is not capable of holding these things together. You know, when everyone saw Brexit happening, they said, what does this say for eschatology? It says exactly what Daniel says. They combine for a while and then they're going to break up. 
It's just the norm of what goes on in the fourth kingdom. So if we look at the statue now, and we say the last part is the Roman Empire, Roman Empire is really not the right name now, is it? We need to generalize it because it's not identifiable by one single national name. It doesn't make sense for a kingdom that's made up of pieces that keep getting mixed up. We have to come up with some name that's more generic. And the one that I would propose is the imperialistic democratic alliances. Daniel said after the statue comes this interesting end about a stone that came down. Now we're going to look at the interpretation of that in 2.44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So finally, the last piece of the puzzle, the stone falling from the sky, Daniel says... The stone that fell and crushed the statue is itself a new kingdom. Now, this is an important idea. He describes the stone as a kingdom. We just said, though, the statue was a bunch of kingdoms. But this kingdom, apparently, is not connected to the other kingdoms. It's something entirely different. We see this because the arrival of the stone coincides with the end of the statue. So if the statue represents an age of history, an age of Gentile kingdoms one after another, and this new kingdom shows up which replaces all of the other ones, well, by definition, what is not Gentile is what? By definition, it's a Jewish kingdom that's arriving to replace what was previously a set of Gentile kingdoms. When this new Jewish kingdom arrives, it will put an end to the age of the Gentiles, which again makes sense, right? The age is defined as a period of Israel being dominated by Gentiles. When the domination's over, then Israel must be the dominant power. Jews returning, Jews ruling, Jerusalem free are the essential elements of a different kind of kingdom. Just as in the statue, whatever replaces the prior dominant power must by definition become the dominant power. And Daniel tells us this in verse 44. He says, it will be a new kingdom to end all other kingdoms and it will fill the whole earth and never have an end. Notice who set it up. God will set up the kingdom. Now that's kind of odd because Daniel has already told us the Lord is always the one who's removing and establishing kings, right? This doesn't seem to be news. But this time Daniel means it differently. He doesn't just mean that God is going to put another man in place as the king. He is saying that God himself will be the king. That God himself will personally rule. It will be his kingdom he will set up, as opposed to a man doing it for him. Furthermore, the symbol is this uncut stone. What do we hear about uncut stones in Scripture? Specifically in the law, Deuteronomy says that if you're going to build an altar to God, you have to pile up uncut stones. You can't take stones you've worked with a hammer and chisel. The idea is very simple, of course. If you're going to put something on an altar in worship to God as sacrifice, as atonement for your sin... You better not have contributed to that by the work of your hands because it suggests that your own work is a part of the process of salvation. And scripture is very clear. Works have nothing to do with receiving God's mercy or going to heaven. No one gets to heaven by their good works. Good works, Isaiah says, are filthy rags to God. The only way you get there is by faith in Christ's work on the cross. So an uncut stone emphasizes God cut this stone, not you. And as such, God gets all the credit. That was the requirement for Israel. And here again, you see that same terminology, an uncut stone, that is to say, a work of God, not of men, brings to the earth a kingdom of, for the Jewish people that replaces all prior Gentile kingdoms. Did you notice also where it struck? You have this statue, 
But where did it hit the statue? At the feet. It's suggesting that the kingdom's at the end of the timeline. When you've reached the end of the fourth kingdom and you're down to the ten somethings, that's when the new kingdom comes. And what was the next thing that happened? Daniel says that what will follow is that this rock turns into a mountain and he describes the mountain as a picture of a worldwide kingdom that has no challenge and will never end. So we know from all these details what we're looking at, don't we? The rock is, it fell, it came back. That's a picture of his second coming. At the second coming of Christ, falling at the end of the age, that is at the feet of the statue, you find the kingdom of Christ coming to earth. One of the many places I could take you in Scripture to confirm for you that the kingdom has not yet come to earth because obviously the age of Gentiles ruling over Israel is still ongoing. It has to be at the end of this age that Jesus comes with the kingdom. And if anyone can just look at the newspaper and see that Israel is certainly still experiencing the age of Gentiles. Although with the regathering since 1948, we can get a sense that we're reaching the end. We'll talk more about that later. Last verses of the chapter, verse 46 Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. I want you to consider for a moment that the most powerful man on earth, Daniel just told him he was, has bowed to the least within his service. Only because of the revealed word of God. His reaction was to what he learned from the word of God. Only the word of God is more powerful than kings. Only the word of God can cause those of such power to bow. And despite his homage to Daniel, if he says that the Lord is Daniel's God, that would tell you that he recognizes there's some authority here, but he doesn't call him his own God. That will change later in this story, not to give it away. And then he gives him gifts. He basically keeps his promise. He, he had told everyone that if you do this, I'll give you great gifts and wealth. And he did that to Daniel. He makes ta- Daniel, even though he's just a teenager, barely out of basic training, he makes him rule over all the wise men of Babylon. You think it might have made some enemies? For Daniel out of that, which is why Daniel in wisdom and savvy turns right around in the midst of all this homage and says, well, if you like me that much, can I make a request? Can you give my friends here a position of power to work with me? Effectively, meaning that the only three people Daniel could trust in his new role were the three that worked directly for him in these in these new assignments. That was very wise. It wasn't just about cronyism. He wanted friends in this new role that he could work with because he knew he wasn't going to have many others. And we'll see how that comes up later. Let's pray very briefly and we'll leave. Dear Father, thank you very much, Father, for um, patience and for strength. I pray, Lord, that what we've learned tonight will sink in. And the amazing testimony of your sovereignty and your power and your ability to move uh, such great things over such long periods of time would give us confidence and trust and faith that whatever comes our way in our own life is certainly within your control. And we can rest in that. Bring us back next week, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.